Fantasy-animation.org is a completely free online educational resource dedicated to examining the relationship between fantasy storytelling and the medium of animation. Our weekly blog posts are written by professional animators and academics and explore a range of diverse topics from the sexual identity of SpongeBob SquarePants to the practical reality of how to make an animation documentary on a pair of knickers. If you like our blogs and podcasts and would like us to make more of them, please do consider supporting the project by simply subscribing to the show via your regular podcast subscription service. And, if available, give us a quick star rating or, better yet, a written review. This really helps to improve our visibility on such sites and help us to grow our organisation and our listeners. Recommend the website to your friends, family and colleagues by all means and please follow us at FanAnimResearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M Research on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and Reddit. I hope you enjoy the show. Everybody get up, it's time to slam now. We got the real jam going down. Welcome to the Space Jam. Space jam. Here's your chance, do your dance at the Space Jam. All right. All right. Hello everybody and welcome to this special sports-themed episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast with me, Chris Holiday, And me, Alex Sargent. And this episode I'm trying to decide whether I'm Bugs Bunny and you're Michael Jordan or whether the other way around. I've been thinking about it for a while and I've resigned myself to the fact that I'm the animated one this week. Interesting. Okay, well, I I mean, I say sports-themed, as you've gestured to, um, because in this instalment we're taking on Space Jam, the 1996 part animated, part Michael Jordan sports comedy that probably did for basketball what the Mighty Ducks did for ice hockey, maybe, perhaps. Um, Now, for me, there's obviously lots to say with regards to hybridity, something we've obviously touched on a lot in this this podcast, uh, animation's relationship to sport, and, of course, many callbacks that the film makes to the golden age of Hollywood cartooning. Alex, are celebrated US cartoon characters playing basketball with NBA sports stars and Bill Murray in any way fantasy? No, this is the first one we've done that isn't. No, of course it is. It's it it it, it made me think a lot about registers of fantasy. I think it reminded me a lot of the episode we did on Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and we can talk about different sort of rhetorics and registers and and worlds within worlds and worlds that are worlds and extensions to our own worlds and what's animated and what's live action and all that. Um, and also, this is a film that I sort of devoured as a child, so I've got probably quite a lot to say about nostalgia, both so for a film and in a film, because I think in many ways the film is nostalgic um, for an age it is not. Um, as well as biography, um, I'm going to make the case that in a way you can see this as a kind of biopic for Michael Jordan. Um, I won't make it strongly, but I'll make it a little bit and rambunctiously throughout. Sure, of course, I expect nothing less. Um, so, uh, and apologies for the, I said to you off air, apologies for the sports puns that are about to, to happen. But joining us uh, on the Toon Squad is our own MVP, <laughs> Professor Paul Wells. I've done it, I've, da- I've done it, who is director, and we're thrilled, he's director of the Animation Academy at Loughborough University, as well as being an internationally established uh, scholar, screenwriter, director, and he's worked across both academia and industry uh, context. He's published across sort of animation and film studies. And I think Alex and I are particularly delighted to, to welcome Paul Wells as our guest um, not least for, for those reasons, but because he's very much part of the, the fantasy animation story. He was not only one of our keynote speakers at the fantasy animation conference where this all began in 20, goodness, 2015, but uh, also kindly wrote the first chapter of the subsequent collection. So we're really thrilled to have Paul chat with us today. So thank you for joining us. Oh, no, oh, it's, it's fantastic to join you both. Uh, you know, Chris and, and Alex, you know, I enjoy the podcast. Very, very pleased to be a part of this conversation. You know, I'm sure we're going to cover a lot of interesting ground. 
Well, that's the thing. I think this this film, and I was saying to you just before we started, it's sort of tricky to pick a, a film that that perhaps speaks to, to to your research, given that you've researched and written on on so much. But we sort of felt, I think, that Space Jam as a potential case study sort of did things and interacted with a number of your research interests. So, I guess to kick things off, we were wondering if you if you wouldn't mind kind of expounding a bit on the film, perhaps reflecting what there is in the film for us uh, as as animation folks. What makes Space Jam so so interesting for for a podcast like this? Well, it's interesting because, of course, it's a film was made in 19, what, 1996 or something like that. So it feels like a million years old. It feels like a million years old in my life as well, <laughs> in the sense that it was kind of uh, quite an interesting touchstone at the time. Sport in my life had always been downtime. It had always been downtime. My son later on was a very good footballer. My daughter's a very good swimmer. But for me, I was kind of like a big Chelsea fan. Sorry to mention that, but Lord knows. Oh, it's been a lovely episode. Know. Bye, everyone. That was, uh, that's. Uh... You're suffering now. <laughs> Goodbye, everybody. But you know, it, and, and you know, and I love the NFL, and I get the American games here, and I love the cricket, and all the rest of it. So, sport was always my downtime, and I religiously kept it separate, really, from animation. You know, it, animation was my kind of work thing, and, and and sport was my my downtime. But increasingly, you know, I saw the relationship really between the two two of them, and the close relationship, and sort of sport. Uh, you know, once once we got to Space Jam, they they obviously directed and completely interacted in ways that kind of forced my hand on that really mm. and you know I loved Jordan at the time I you know I followed the Bulls and, and and it was great you know peak period for Jordan I'd seen you know these original advertisements initially with um, Jordan and the kind of the Warner Brothers cartoon characters it was a film waiting to happen as it were you know and and ultimately of course Space Jam arrives and and technically at the time of course it was a it was quite a revelation it had used the kind of two and a half D software for the first some of the first times anyway all the kind of shots with Jordan were shot in a big green screen kind of kind of stadia so he could play freely in terms of the kind of skills and so forth that he had film included Charles Barkley who was kind of like you know played out as a bit of a, you know slightly a, a villain in the in the film he's obviously one of the monsters talents but also he was the anti-Jordan you know he was he was the guy that turned around and and told the public that he didn't want to be a role model I, I'm not bringing up your kids he said you know I'm a basketball player you know whereas Jordan obviously was always a kind of you know I, I want to be a you know the, the, the kind of all-American male who you who you follow religiously as a sports icon so lots going on there but what really fascinated me ultimately from an animation point of view was the fact that okay you can combine uh you know warner brothers cartoon characters and the cartoonal but you were actually combining it with michael jordan who at this time of course had established the air jordan brand and the whole idea of flight the whole kind of thing about that somehow jordan could fly mm. you know and i just thought well this is really interesting because Ultimately, on the court, yeah, this great leap and range that he had, this extraordinary athleticism. But I just thought, well, what's the film going to do with that? Because anything he can do, any animated character can do better. You know, it, they can stretch, they can slide, they can, they can leap far better than he can, you know. And I kept thinking, wow, this is going to be the kind of thing in the film that I'm looking out for. 
and you know it's not a spoiler you know some 24 or 25 years on whatever it is <laughs> to say when we get the final sequence when jordan actually does the big leap towards the basket from the middle of the court you know he kind of like stretches and stretches and then the big flight thing takes place and then somehow his arm extends another 20 miles to put the you know to put the the the, the ball in the basket and i thought there it is you know in order for Jordan to be even uber Jordan, to be mega Jordan, he's got to be animated, you know? And so it was a great kind of sort of relationship between those things for me that started a real interest after that between animation and sport. Not an easy one, especially over my career, because it's taken a long time for animation itself to be of interest to anybody. But if it's about sport, there's a very close relationship between them because they are both acts of deliberate choreography in terms of a sequence of action, you know. And, and ultimately, that very starting premise for me enabled me to bring them together. Mm. Well, I, I guess I, I, knowing what I know of your work and, and the connections that you've made between sport and, and animation, this seemed... You know, it's, it's, of course, it seemed like an obvious choice, but actually, uh, I I hadn't because I'd not seen the film before, and I was struck. And maybe this is where Alex jumps in with his this is film. Uh, this is really a biopic about Michael Jordan. How much he sort of drives the way that his body is created in a way that suggests he is, you know, he is animated and 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 certainly is subject to certain kinds of cartoonal physics and laws throughout the the film and, and so forth. But what really struck me was the grounding that the film makes in establishing him as a star. And there's, I think there's lots to say about his relationship to Bugs Bunny in terms of uh, of stardom. But but yeah, I mean, you have the first star is Bugs Bunny entering the Warner Brothers logo as he traditionally did, you know, 50, whatever, 60 years ago. And then you have quite an elongated sequence of Michael Jordan-ness. You have, after the sort of child sequence where he, he sort of grows up, I think it's, um, yeah, summer 1973, you have a flashback to Michael as a child. And then suddenly you have quite an elongated over the, the credit sequence of a couple of minutes footage and shots of his performance and his action and there's something about the film what the film tries to do in recuperating that into the world of animation immediately he is a highly animated and as you said an, an, an uber jordan in that moment yeah i mean it's, it was a very, very interesting all of that because of course this does come at the time where the footage from the conference there is real footage of his mm. of his retirement conference and kind of like, and he did go on to play baseball, and and he played, you know, semi successfully. I mean, they play him out in the film, ironically, as a bit of a failure yeah. in, in baseball. But he did have some success, but of course, never the success he had as, you know, I mean, the greatest superstar in 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 basketball that he still is, really. I mean, I know we've got the sequel coming up of Space Jam: The Legacy with with LeBron James, yeah. of course, and that will be an interesting comparison. But Jordan really is still the kind of, you know, I suppose Kobe Bryant might be considered there as well but but Jordan really is considered the icon of basketball and that sequence that kind of well the whole film really is a wonderful bridging agent for him to come back to his return to the Chicago Bulls after that of course later on so it kind of keeps him as this kind of you know star figure um, whilst telling his story and enabling him to play the star element in it I mean what's really I think interesting about that is the end of the film where really you know some very superstar players in their own right, Charles Barkley, Patrick Ewing particularly, who have been the monsters. Their, their talent's been stolen to play for the monsters. 
stars. You know, those are seriously, seriously good players in, in NBA history. And both of them, along with the other players, kind of, you know, just play to Jordan as if he's as if he's uh, he's the boy. You know, he's given them back their talent. He's given them back their, their lives. He's given them back their livelihoods, you know, by saving uh, you know, the NBA, uh, which ironically, which really chimes with now, has actually said we're going to play no more basketball because this is a virus. You know, this is something which has stopped us from playing basketball and we're not going to play again until basically someone has cured this virus. So ultimately, Jordan in this game comes back with their talent from winning the basketball game. Uh, but ultimately, he's giving back these major players who actually defer to him you know, their, their ability. So it's an extraordinary story. And it does really enhance Michael Jordan's kind of iconic star figure. Really. And and the meta-narrative surrounding that, Paul, of course, is that, you know, that he does come back to the NBA and the sort of what Space Jam does is kind of narrativize fantastically, um, you know, in the, in the sort of literal rather than sort of superlative sense of the words, how he comes about that decision to return to the NBA at a point where Jordan is sort of the global superstar that embodies what the NBA can be, is the excitement of the NBA. You know, to, to add fantasy to the equation, he's a fan- fantastical star that seems to embody the NBA itself, right? And so in many ways, that yeah. that finale is, is a, you know... You, thank you for coming back and sort of re-energizing the NBA with this sort of cultural, yeah. fan, you know, imaginary. Because you know that's that's what he was. I mean, to, to to figures, you know, perhaps I don't know about within the American context. There's probably some more nuance to it. But he was a global. He he was the NBA. Michael Jordan was the reason yeah. for a, well, a, a child in the UK or in Europe to watch the NBA. Why would you well, watch it? And, you know, and, and to buy Air Jordans, of course. Yeah. That's that that's big when everybody had those basketball, you know, sort of uh, boots, you know. And, and it was, But what was interesting, I think, was that we've seen in this recent documentary series, The Last Dance, you know, uh, which has been all about that period of, of, of uh, Jordan's career. And, of course, very much a Jordan-driven, kind of produced kind of, kind of documentary. Very, very fine documentary, actually, really interesting. But it situates that period really kind of well in a way that really it reinforces that view, Alex, actually, that, that essentially, you know, Jordan's... Uh, iconic status really was needed back in the, the in, in the NBA. You know, there was a real anxiety really about the fact of you know the kind of status of the game and and, and ultimately whether it was going to have superstars you know of his magnitude uh, uh, again. You know, so there was anxiety about that, and he came back and of course the the Bulls and and Jordan has this second act you know model that that once again you know sort of enhances him. But I have to say. That what's really interesting about that was that in terms of like the Super Bowl, which had the kind of, uh, you know, commercials between Jordan and, and Bugs Bunny and, and indeed Jordan, of course, and Larry Bird before, um, that the Bugs Bunny-Jordan uh, combination was especially important because they wanted to reach all of America. And wanted to reach all of you know its constituencies from people who knew about basketball, but children, you know, that suddenly children are going to get this, you know, this kind of link to Jordan uh, again. You know, if he'd gone out of the public imaginary in some way, Bugs Bunny was going to revive it. Bugs Bunny somehow was even more eternal. You know, Jordan can maybe ebb and flow. You know, he's, he's peak of his game, but perhaps he'll flow away, just become this nostalgic figure. Bugs Bunny is still a superstar now, you know, and so the whole kind of iconography and uh, of Warner Brothers, you know, has lasted so long that Bugs Bunny was never and is never questioned as kind of like a star in the firmament. 
And that's, I think there's a parallel there between Bugs Bunny and Michael Jordan in that, you know, Bugs Bunny is the star of the Looney Tunes in that, you know, if, if you want one figure on a poster and people think Looney Tunes, it's, it's Bugs Bunny. But, you know, the way the actual show pans out, it's obviously an ensemble cast. You know, it, we could all have a debate about who's our favourite, who's the funniest. Um, he's one of many. Um, it's, a, it's a team sport. But somehow Bugs Bunny has sort of, been this figure of which we 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 I know gravitate this cultural imaginary around to emblify Looney Tunes in the same way Mickey Mouse. How many people know that Mickey Mouse equals Disney, but has never seen a Mickey Mouse cartoon? Right, that's it's a very similar Absolutely. dynamic in that respect. So yeah. Jordan, by investing by having that poster, Bugs Bunny and Michael Jordan, it, it equates the same fantastical dynamic. Right, Jordan is the NBA. Yeah. Bugs Bunny is cartoons. They're coming together. Yeah. Mm. And that's right, and, and and totally deliberately so, of course. And you know, but what I think a, a very interesting kind of aspect to that though becomes, of course, the emergence of a new character in kind of Lola Bunny, who 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 then takes on these very dynamic characteristics for young women, you know, watching watching cartoons, and later on this idea that there's this feisty, you know, sort of very good basketball player who also kind of you know sexy though she is, puts all the men in their place. You know, basically, you know, puts uh, the monsters in their place as well. Ultimately, of course, is 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 Bugs's um, kind of uh, partner, but and, and they kiss at the end. But there's something actually very uncomfortable about that moment. I actually always think because it sort of sensualizes, sexualizes Bugs in a way that kind of like we don't expect. We like him as a crossdresser. You know, we like him doing alternative things. We you know we, we don't want kind of standard romance for Bugs. We want you know we want we want to play with gender. We want to play with 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 being in drag, we want to do all sorts of things with bugs, and certainly we want to play queer. Certainly, for a queer audience, we do. Um, you know, the idea that he might have a conventional romance with a with a feisty young woman is, is perhaps not our preference. But either way, very important at the time because it established Lola as the kind of girl interest in the kind of Warner Brothers canon, and that kind of modernised so much for them about the way in which young women would invest. I think the and I yeah I hadn't really thought about the iconicity and it was the use of the word the the iconic status of Michael Jordan against Bugs Bunny as a character in this uh, with a degree of cultural purchase and you're right the sort of shoehorning of a um, quote unquote conventional relationship at the end perhaps doesn't sit sit particularly as as kind of not I don't know nicely as it as it should or comfortably as it should but I guess I was interested in in what the emphasis on the real Jordan the real Jordan's history his childhood but all those those kind of shots and and the the fact that he's a he's obviously a, a person who lives in images and and I wonder as well as, as part of that relationship that Alex is is saying is that what that opening or that that credit that credit sequence where my mum popped her head around and go, is the film started yet? No, 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 we're still doing a history, a potted history of Michael Jordan. Um, but that idea that he he's a character, kind of a character who lives in images, and maybe the film's trying to bridge the gap between the emphasis on the, this real human that he is no more or no less human or no less uh, no more or no less a, a person of images who is drawn than the the you know the characters in the intergalactic amusement park or the Looney Tunes characters that he will share the court with, and so it seems like the emphasis on the real Jordan through that footage as you said Paul of the of his last sort of uh, well his retirement between 93 and 95 uh, um, that the film sort of fictionalizes that gap in between whether or not the emphasis on the real Jordan is trying to have the inverse effect it's trying to make him seem through that celebrity status as animated as graphic and kind of flatten him out a bit in relation to yeah, other well, characters I think, I think 
there's a lot of that kind of story building that isn't there about around destiny you know that kind of like there's a almost a manifest destiny of of of, of jordan's you know kind of early life and the whole idea that he's going to go to chapel, chapel hill you know he's going to go to north carolina and he's going to be this successful guy and what have you and of course the whole idea as well a little bit like oj was for you know for, for a long time that somehow you know uh, jordan becomes acceptable to a white america and he doesn't take on too much of an iconography that as it were is you know is, is black iconography that comes later when of course he's with spike lee and and sort of like and doing all the kind of ads uh, that he did with spike lee and the whole kind of black cultural uh, identity starts to change with jordan but really one of the kind of key things that's crucial about Bugsy's kind of entry at that point is that the flattening, if there is a flattening, is one that says this is for the whole of America's kind of like audience. This is this this is a, a palatable and acceptable kind of idea about uh, Americanism and about a certain level of sort of masculinity, a certain level of playfulness and irony, uh, a certain kind of um, as well underpinning sort of acceptance of the status of sport in America. You know, very, very crucial and important uh, aspect of this is, is, is the importance of sport in American culture. And, you know, these, the, these kind of things may be a less uh, pertinent in the UK where we never make a decent football film <laughs> unless England lose in the quarterfinals, you know, and, and, we make, and largely we make sport films that are about jokes but jokes in a way that are poking fun at the sport and poking fun at the sports people. You know, uh, you know, American stuff wouldn't want to do that. They'll have jokes, but the kind of respect for the sport and the whole respect for, you know, sport within American culture uh, is very potent, you know. So in terms of then animation, because this, you know, this is a sports movie, it's a genre piece, it fits very, I mean, the, 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 the mention that I made at the start in towards the Mighty Ducks is sort of part playful insofar as it's very much a film that my dad would love because it's an underdog story, it's a, a sort of, you know, a true story, you know, well, it's like true story, but it's it's based on, on that sort of underdog narrative, the idea of the return, as you said. So this is this is a sports movie and crucially basketball perhaps has allowances in a way that and the film sets this up basketball is, is obviously very bodily in the way that golf quite clearly is not um but i just I, I guess pulling back a little bit why do you and this is this is you know a, a bit a huge question but i just wondered why why has animation i suppose why has animation turned to sports so regularly and is it is it because of that sort of medium specificity element to to, to animation and 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 also i guess why why is it pleasurable for sport to engage with animation in this way? It's, it's obviously it underpins underpins your work that you've done on animation and sport and the relationship between both of them as as, a, as material processes. But it's obviously there's obviously pleasure in seeing animated sport in this way. So why have they been drawn yeah. to each other? Well, I think I, I, I think it's I think you've got two two uh, aspects you know sort of happening there, which are, one one of which just surely is about the meaning and pleasures of motion. And perfect motion mm. as well. You know, animation, you know, is is a version of perfect motion <laughs> in one in one way or another. You know, where and sport at its finest, you know, when it's played, uh, you know, played out in terms of its 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 most attractive aesthetics by the best players. You know, there's this deep attraction to kind of motion and pattern and the way in which kind of certainly within the rules and regulations of a game, you know, has got a kind of an order, a certain kind of you know order and metaphor that's easily transferable to you know to kind of our social and cultural life in one form or another. You know, sport for some people is kind of an, an idea 
ideal metaphor for how how society ought to run. You know, it's got rules and regulations, it's got competition, and it's got conflict, and it's got drama, and it's got all of those things. But ultimately, everything plays itself out in by fair means, ultimately, supposedly, mm. in ways that kind of bring order and bring uh, a sense of you know resolution to the way in which we might manage life. I mean, we all know that life is obviously just one long chaotic you know, bizarre thing that we manage to coerce into some sort of habitual ways of being. But, I mean, ultimately, ultimately, it's a chaotic thing. Now, sport tries to say that it isn't, really. It tries to manage, you know, the, the idea of, of, of all of these kind of human dynamics within, within a close frame. People love sport to watch, you know, <laughs> that's the thing, you know, so many people participate, of course they do, there's a high percentage of people participate in sport, but so many more people like to watch it, simply because inbuilt in it is kind of, you know, an unscripted drama. Now, when it becomes animation, of course, you haven't got unscripted drama, you've got the very opposite, you've got totally scripted drama, controlled drama. So therefore, the aesthetics in animation are so vital to bringing either excessive gags, like you get obviously in the Warner Brothers stuff, or sometimes excessive lyricism that you get in, 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 in much animation that takes, shall we say, animation very seriously in terms of that and sees its underpinning emotional life. I mean, take Inside Out. Inside Out is a great sport movie, you know? Why? It's because hockey is at the absolute centre of, you know, the, 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 the young girl's character. It's, it's, it's hockey that gives her her central memory. It's her touchstone for pleasure, for home, for the way in which she felt happy. And without it, you know, it, you know her life has basically gone into psychological and emotional collapse. You know? It's an extraordinary thing. Mm -hmm. And sport can handle these metaphors. But animation can manage those metaphors aesthetically. Mm. And so the kind of combination between the two is really, really potent in terms of the fact that, you know, you can get these meanings and emotions across. They're naturally metaphorically combined. Hi, everybody. I'm just pausing the podcast here for a moment because, well, whew, I mean, gosh, I'm not really sure how to get this out, really. But um, I guess, well, 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 what I mean is... Eh, what I'm trying to say is... We need your help! Thanks, Bugs. Don't tell Chris, but you make for one hell of an animated partner. Anyway, yes, as Bugs said so eloquently, we do need your help. We're trying to gather a little bit of information about our listenership for a variety of reasons. We want to know what we're doing well, we want to know what we could be doing even better, and we want to get a sense of who's listening out there, because it will help us explain our activities to various parties that might help us continue to grow and expand fantasy-animation.org to provide more content and better content just for you. So, if you'd be so kind, would you mind sparing just a few moments to complete a short survey for us? You can access it via the website, fantasy-animation.org, as well as via our social media platforms on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The handle is, of course, Fananim Research, F-A-N-A-N-I-M Research. You should find the link very easily on any of those platforms, um, and it will take you to a short Google Talk survey, um, which will take no more than a minute or two to fill out. Skip any question you like if you don't want to answer all of it, um, but we'd really appreciate you giving it a bit of time to think through some of the answers. It will really help us out. The survey will be live for the next few months, and we'd really encourage everyone to fill it out, whether this is your first episode or whether you're a diehard fan. Please, help us out so that we can make better content for you. I mean, come on, I just pretended to have a conversation with Bugs Bunny on a show that I know full well has lots of people listening to it. I work at a university, I have students to teach, 
Chris isn't doing this segment. He's off being respectful somewhere, probably giving some informative lecture about Eisensteinian philosophy. But not me. I'm pretending to talk to Bugs Bunny on a microphone to you guys. And that's how much I care about this survey. Please complete it for me, for my sake, because apparently my sanity won't take it. For now, do get back to the show. I think I was trying to think through the relationship a little bit and how I could articulate it from sort of my perspective on the podcast. And and the word that just kept coming up again and again was, was play. Um, because actually, what I was struck with when watching that sort of final basketball sequence, which is about... You know, it's it's coming up to forty minutes of the movie. It's a it's a good old chunk of the of the of the thing here. It's how how sort of there's a very delicate balancing act in that sequence, and that there's not a lot of what I would call basketball in inverted commas actually happening on on the court because what's happening is a playful subversion of exactly those rules that you're you're describing, Paul. And and like there's loads and loads of gags we could list of, you know, f- from stuff like, you know, him stretching out his arm, but even that actually perhaps isn't that's him playing by the rules but within an animated body. But you get things like, you know, the monsters are constantly sort of smacking the characters over and, you know, basketball is a non contact sport last time I checked. And, you know, breathing fire on Foghorn Leghorn to turning him into a bucket of KFC and all these kind of things and, and, and a lot of the ways that the, the Looney Tunes come to score goals is through deception and trickery and, and sort of um, and madcap schemes and not by passing the ball and being athletic. Um, so it skirts a very interesting line which I would describe as playful in that it's always basketball because it's never it never just transcends the rules entirely. You know they don't run outside of the court, uh, and they are ultimately trying to get the ball in the basket. And it looks like basketball, and it kind of seems like basketball. But it's it's very it's one step away from the rules of basketball. Yeah, no, well, that, that, that's the great thing about play and, and about sport. Actually, mm. sport might have rules and regu- regulations, but then it's got codes and conventions. You know, and every professional knows them, you know, that basically if a player gets past you in the last minute and he's going to score a goal, then you foul him, you know, and everybody knows that that's going to happen simply because that's against the rules. But it's a code and convention that's likely to happen. And you take one for the team, you get a yellow card, but you've just stopped them scoring, you know. So basically, the whole kind of idea within, obviously, something like Space Jam is that you use those moments of the idea of, you know, there's rules and regulations, but every, you know, every bit of sequence is going to break them simply to make a joke or to give actually, in some ways, the thread in the middle of it that Jordan is the only authentic player. He's the only person who can actually play basketball, you know. And so, uh, you know, he, he's the guy who gets the choreographies that are about his skills and about his particular talents as a basketball player. Whereas all the animated characters get to do the gags they normally do, you know, and and they get the excessive violence, they get the excessive uh, kind of, you know, body distortions and so forth. But that's what's so great about that final sequence is that even... In order to justify, you know, the idea that Jordan wins the game for them, he still has to become animated, mm. and that is really what what always entertained me so much. That even as, as someone like Jordan, whose skills are unparalleled in many ways, and who did have these extraordinary physical, you know, powers of of, of reach and leap and, and and distance covering and and so forth, uh, you know, in order in order to yet be a greater superstar and to authenticate his skills even further had to be animated, had to be made excess, you know. 
But it seems like, as, on that note, that basketball, again, is the perfect space of play for a group of animators who are thinking about or thinking their way through the comic potential. And I guess this is one of the other things that you, you know, that, that animation is, or that, that sport and animation, or the representation of sport in animation. And there are, I guess, many ways in which animation and sport do collide, but the representation of sport in animation is often played for its comedy. And the, the way in which rules can be subverted... Uh, not necessarily by the players that play them, but by the animation that draws them. Uh, and obviously, mm. part of the pleasure, and my favourite gag in the whole film is just seeing that, that kind of roast chicken hooked up to a drip towards the end of the film, when they're all sort of standing there and they've got like bo- broken bones and things. Um, but there's something obviously around that, that this is a court of play for the animators to be able to think through what gags on a basketball court might look like and how... And how they can play, as Alex is saying, within within the rules. You know, there are. I don't really thought about that, the rules and, and regulations versus codes and conventions, uh, because the film is very hot on that. It talks about you need five players or whatever. You need an extra player, and if you don't have your player, then the game will be forfeit. So there is jeopardy. The rules seem to create the jeopardy, the narrative jeopardy, uh, and then the kinds of codes and conventions are where the the, narr- the the stuff, the comedy stuff of the film takes place. Yeah, I thought what was interesting about that sequence, though, is that the rules are explained with some footage from the 1950s or early 60s and kind of like it's black and white and it's very much implicitly saying, look, that's that that's what they used to think it was. Do you know what I mean? That's not a modern nature of the game. That's that's what we traditionally think the rules are, you know. And you always kind of pop back to the fifties to kind of to have those kind of moments in films that there was some sort of agreed consensus then about the rules there, you know, whether they were in sport or sex or kitchens or whatever they were, you know. Post war America had had that sense of being reconstructed and we're all on the same page. Whereas kind of a movie made in the nineties, you know, is just going to say yeah yeah, don't think so you know Uh, but let's kind of at least play lip service to that idea before we let all the animators you know crack their jokes and you know break break the the fourth wall and 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 essentially kind of like play with all the kind of cinematic conventions all the kind of warner brothers cartoons we kind of anticipate are going to happen i wonder if we could strengthen the ties even further just by bringing sort of the notion of childhood into the equation because again you brought up mighty ducks in the in the intro another film i I'm intimately uh, familiar with, um, and I can remember the Not Mighty Ducks. That's exactly the set, or a lot of these. These there's a lot of these sort of fantastical sports movies throughout Hollywood's history, from you know right back to sort of the 40s with things like Angels in the Outfield, which is sort of oh, about you know uh, yeah. sort of you know a, hev- a heavenly uh, baseball pitch, um, through to things like the Mighty Ducks, and 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 whether they're overtly fantastical or not, the sport is fantastically represented in that it's yeah. all about it's all about using cunning. And teamwork and creativity to think through the conventions. You know, the Mighty Ducks with their flying V and their hide the puck behind someone's leg while the other person distracts them, and then all this kind of stuff that, that is absolutely at purchase in, in Space Jam. And it makes me think actually, it's it's quite like what you do when you're a kid and you're playing sport, and that you don't play 11 11, no, you know, with this country of soccer, football. Um, you don't play 11 11 aside with your mates with a, with a referee and two official goals. You play. 
you know, um, you play Wally or you play horse or you, um, you know, you rush goalie or you, um, you know, you play with the sport. You see what you can keep so that you're still nominally playing football and you play with the rest of it. And yeah, you know. ah, yeah well, you see, that is a, a very particular kind of thing in my own, you know, sort of my own autobiography, autobiography really, my own biography rather, in the sense that, you know, I work at Loughborough University. Now, for you know, the international listeners here, you might not know that Loughborough University is the world's leading sport university, you know, and it's got an Olympic pool and it's got, you know, international cricketers and rugby players coming down the drive and you see them, you nod and wink. And people who work there have to be brilliant physical specimens like me, you know, they have to they have to go to the gym every day and just make sure, sure that works. They also have to go in places like the Olympic pool in the staff lane. And basically, in the staff lane, you are next to Olympic swimmers who are going, zoom, 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 zoom. and you've got people like me who are standing in the corner keeping our sandwiches dry, you know? And the whole kind of issue there is one that is absolutely the juxtaposition that I found so funny, you know, in, in general, is that exactly as you just said, Alex, you know, there is this professionalised model of sport, which is everything that you probably don't see in most sport movies, set against the idea of those who might know about sport, love sport, participate in it in a certain way, like me, mm. who then get this kind of juxtaposed correspondence that is intrinsically funny, you know? And I just really think that that's why so many sports movies kind of play out in the way that they do, you know? Mm. But that's why you also become kind of interested in, like for me, my first earliest sport cartoon um, memory is actually something like... Um, the the Hanna-Barbera explanations of hockey during the Olympics, which were done in uh, animation, and they were explained by a, an animated hockey puck, you know. And I, and I remember them vividly as explaining a game that I didn't understand, you know. So, you know, the, it's kind of, you have these kind of moments where you go, oh, yeah, I think that was where I first encountered it. But there's always this juxtaposition between kind of like the spectator who thinks they know about sport, you know, as the brilliant pub pundit versus the idea of people who actually play sport at the highest level and never the twain is going to meet. You know? <laughs> well, I, I actually, you're, yeah, and as you, were, as you were talking, I was thinking about what the film does in, in dramatising that, that space between the amateur and the professional. And then what it does with yeah. that, it treats it highly creatively. Of course, we have, I mean, one of my favourite things about this film is that it fits into a very small but niche subgenre of Wayne Knight as bumbling sidekick films. So that's the, yeah. fir that's the first yeah. thing that the film does. But it obviously plays with yeah. the idea of the amateur and the professional uh, and capability and you have uh, Bill Murray who surprisingly is quite good at the end but but kind of goes out on a high and then you have Wayne Knight's character Stan who sort of has been sitting on the bench this entire time and then of course you have the professionals and then the, the drama of the film is that the, the, this kind of group of four or five professionals has have their talent stolen by these animated characters turning them from amateurs to professionals so the film does a lot of creative things with that that relationship between what it means to be able to, to sort of par participate meaningfully uh, what it means to be a professional, what it means to be an amateur, what it means to learn and skill and talent. Yeah. And it does all these things really creatively, I think. Yeah, I think well, and there's, well, that's that wonderful little sequence in the middle, which I'm really surprised that Charles Barkley agree, agreed to do, where he, where he witnesses oh, yeah. uh, you know, a set of girls girls of all people you know playing you know playing basketball you know and he's and he's and he's you know he's he's apparently ill at this point you know he doesn't know that you know that his talent's been stolen but there's something wrong with him he asks for a game with them and of course they think he's charles barkley superstar 
but without his talent, I mean, he's useless, you know. And they and they ask him to go accordingly. They think he's an imposter. They dismiss him. You're not Charles Barkley. You're just a guy who's a wannabe, you know, who looks like him, you know. And Charles, you know, just trails forlornly off, you know, having been totally dismissed in this sequence. And, I, and you know, this is a guy who's been in the American Dream Team, you know, he's one of the greatest players in the game. I mean, difficult guy, for sure. But I like him because of that, you know. Yeah. And, of course, there's a running gag about him in the in the, um, in the the film anyway because Jordan's got a dog, a dog kennel where, you know, that basically, you know, the dog's called Charles. And, of course, it's a dog, so it's Charles Barkley, isn't it? So, you know, there's all of these kind of, like, implied kind of, kind of things going on at all points, which operate a little bit like cartoonal jokes, of course. Mm. You know, they, they are the kind of jokes you would see in a Warner Brothers cartoon. So, so yeah, so those tensions, I, I, I think, are, are played out. Actually, the more I, I think about the film, it, it, it's, it's got a lot going for it in terms of its self-conscious kind of address of the tensions between sport and animation, really, and how yeah. it uses them effectively to, you know, to play out a certain kind of ironic take on things. And I guess talent versus creativity, right? In that, you know, that's always oh. a f- in flux in the movie, in that half of the movie is is about valorizing Michael Jordan's innate talent right back from that sort of you know destiny destiny sequence right at the beginning and then the other half is monsters what they all they have is talent they don't have an affiliation with the sport they don't have a love of the sport they don't really even really know what basketball is but they suck mm-hmm. the talent out of these superstars and therefore they're playing good basketball, but there's a sense that they're not playing fair basketball, and that's kind of the that you know that this this sort of machine like let's win the game because that will please our boss back in space is not how basketball should be played, um, and and Bugs Bunny is playing it better because although he's not as good as basketball as the Monstars, he's playing it with a love and creativity behind him, um, and yeah, there's a rec- there's I'm not sure it reconciles it, but it certainly kind of throws the hornet's nest of those tensions around for a bit i yeah i, I now i'm gonna throw this in there because well i don't have an answer to this actually i'm interested in what 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 you both think and i was going to talk about race and i was talking about the the distinction that the film makes between michael jordan's body uh, and the bodies of its kind of i guess the, the two white characters so so wayne knight and um and bill murray and what and a couple of other characters that they, when those characters are first introduced, Bill Murray in particular, uh, he's playing golf. And, and golf is obviously, as I said, very different to, to basketball. But I'm just trying to get get my head around what the film is doing with kind of exceptionalism uh, and the relationship between exceptionalism and, and race. And, and actually, it was it was when you were talking about the, the Charles Barkley sequence when he goes to visit a group of young, diverse children. And he has that confrontation with that young that young. Um, black girl who sort of defeats him and then says that you aren't the, the real Charles Martin. and I don't really know what to say about that mm. and what the film is doing with the exceptionalism of Jordan's black body versus the the kind of I suppose the more problematic version of that which is his body should be his body should be celebrated or or, or blackness is something yeah. that should be celebrated only when it is exceptional and I'm just trying to get my head around yeah. what the film if it does have anything to say about race in that sense yeah I mean I, th- I think the interesting thing about that is kind of like it's 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 always interesting with films like that about the role they play within the text of the film 
And then, of course, the extra text that they always carry with them in terms of their you know, identities outside film. And, and, and this film really does problematise that very, very significantly. I think one of the kind of interesting things about the kind of racial, you know, aspect of that is in that first golfing sequence i think it's very important that larry bird is there larry bird obviously you know again a, a, a highly exceptional you know basketball player and was and 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 for a long time uh was seen as perhaps you know someone who could be seen as as good as jordan or might be seen as as, as the top player in the american game you know so he had a considerable status and of course he'd uh participated in a number of advertisements with jordan they came as a bit of a comic couple in in various commercials but they were very much given a kind of what we might call race equivalence you know let's not look at race here these are two superstar sportsmen who basically represent a kind of shall we say i don't know um uh, the, the kind of America that says, let's not look at race issues in a negative light, you know, very much, as I say, a little bit like OJ for a long time, you know, OJ was very much uh, a champion of, of white culture and, and explicitly said that basically he didn't want to be, you know, in a certain sense, uh, a, a race symbol, you know, he wanted to just be a top quality sportsman and again, pass into the media industries without, you know, his his blackness being kind of like a, a definitive symbolic, uh, you know, uh, aspect of his of, of his persona of his of his celebrity. Um, and I think Jordan was a little bit like that as well. It was it was certainly I think Spike Lee who politicized him uh, much, you know, much more. But Jordan really still stayed pretty distant from that because he had too much of an eye on 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 com- on commerce on commerce. Yeah. He had to sell training shoes, you know, and he's and, and and that means he's got to go to black and white America acceptably. Now Barkley, you know, really, you know, is an important piece of casting because he had no interest in that. You know, he was a superstar player, but he explicitly said, "I'm not a symbol to you. I don't bring up your children." I don't want to be a role model, and however I, you know, however I behave outside the court is my business. And we've seen that in American sport across the board, with you know, sort of NFL players, for example, who've said the same thing. You know, uh, look, I, I'm an American football player, but that's my identity. What I do outside the sport is my business. You know, but then of course you have comeuppance in that with people like Michael Vick. I don't know whether you know him, one of the great NFL. You know, quarterbacks who anticipates the kind of Mahomes and the and the people of today, but at one point uh, he got caught for the fact that he uh, was running dog fighting, and in his culture and, and from the place that he came from, that was a kind of naturalized kind of like aspect of, of that cultural life. And of course, you know, it was seen, of course, quite rightly, by animal welfare people and so forth as illegal. And he was sent to jail. And there was all sorts of things of that sort. He makes the kind of recovery later on by by coming back and being successful, then becoming a, a great pundit, learning his lesson. But these kind of trajectories of kind of like rise and fall and second act and kind of the whole sense of which sporting, you know, kind of culture, talent can transcend somehow you know, sort of uh, a particular kind of moral code or ultimately prove it really kind of happens a lot in sport. And I think all of that has has definitely characterised what we might call, you know, issues of race, issues of gender, issues of sexuality in sports films. Uh, Just only to uh, add to that, I think, because I I, I agree with all of it, is that that I think what's interesting about the movie is that one, I think 
on the one hand, the explicit narrative is very keen to place Jordan in white spaces. Certainly, sort of the live action stuff. You know, he's 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 constantly surrounded by sort of white figures of of familial figures Wayne Knight Bill Murray Bill Murray these yeah. sort of white stars and and whilst his 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 rivals in the NBA are not they inhabit black spaces right the Barkley scene is is very particular in that um sort of coding and then you've got the mon stars who are partially as a sort of narrative device that they're meant to sort of embody the 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 physical attributes of those they've stolen the talent from but the people they've stolen the talent from are all black superstars and they are very coded as black in the in the film, so on one level it, it's doing something pretty problematic, and I think you know it's 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 a contradictory text because most texts are. But I th- the one thing I will say, sort of in terms of grounding the audience in in black spaces and in black culture, is the soundtrack. Is the soundtrack adds yeah. hip hop to the equation, and the relationship between hip hop and basketball is really important to emphasize. And and the way that the, the the soundtrack kind of very subtly, perhaps too subtly, does highlight. I mean, it's a very sanctified version of of sort of you know mid nineties hip hop. It's a very child friendly version. We get the R Kelly, I believe I can fly here, and you get these sort of songs about the cartoon people and the song you know the title song about Space Jam. But but it is at least drawing on a sort of you know urban black. Um, you know, musical vernacular to to, to sell, wow. and I the, I can I can attest that Space Jam was the first album I ever bought as a child, which speaks wow. uh, terribly wow. or wonderfully to me. I don't know which, but it, I remember how important that album was to the whole cultural obsession of the movie because the album was everything, and the song that I believe I can fly was was you know school disco fodder. It was massive. Yeah, on that on that issue of you said the the kind of race currency or the racial currency, I was thinking about the the values that the film allocates to white characters largely. You know, the the, the Wayne Knights and, and the Bill Murrays of the of the of the film, and how that plays, how the film treats the idea of expertise, whether or not it's something. Certainly, I think that sort of pre-credit sequence where we see a young Michael Jordan. There's something about talent that is innate. That obviously has a long history when it when it is mapped onto onto the the body politics of of of, of black bodies and and that there's something innate and powerful in a way that doesn't map onto white bodies. White white skill comes from another place. It comes from kind of learning and and talent and, and intellect in a way that something there's something more bodily and more physical. And so I wonder what that then does to the to the cartoon characters and what sort of racial body politics is going on with them because they are they are i don't know they 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 pass but they don't and i'm just trying to get my head around that the obviously i mean this kind of it really takes me back that particular question to the moment when i you know i started to write about or wanted to write anyway you know about animation and animals and i just thought oh there'd be a massive literature about that massive and of course, there was none. I was absolutely stunned, and so kind of ended up writing animated bestiary, kind of like as, as a way of, you know, starting a, a, a lot more of that absolutely necessary discourse. Because you know, if you've got a, 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 a you know a form like animation, which you know across virtually you know a hundred years has largely used anima, uh, animals as its central characters, and not only in American cartoons but all over the world. We just say, well, what function, of course, does animal, you know, animal characters play? And one of the functions they play, like all 
you know, as it were, non-human characters, is that the politics that they carry can be either obscured or blurred or in, in a certain way not attached explicitly to a human being, you know. So the monsters, you know, in being monstrous in a certain way, uh, you know, they might carry the talents of, 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 of you know, black and white NBA players, but they kind of cancel out almost the idea of the kind of racial, you know, readings of, uh, you know, of, of some of those things. And of course, mm-hmm. and such is the way of animation across the board that all sorts of kind of gender identities, race identities, uh, you know, uh, all sorts of um, social identities can in some way be eluded or they can be blurred. And of course, that very much invited in the moment of, of, of queer politics, because queer politics could say, well, look, animation best represents the performance of identity and the performance mm-hmm. of the way in which we might address particular discourses of, of, of identity politics. Now, that tension between when they're blurred and we can't actually figure them out at all, so they kind of obscure the event, versus kind of overt metaphors about race, gender and identity have characterised a lot of animation and animation sport, uh, you know, sort of uh, work for, for any, any amount of years because, of course, they're going to carry discourses that you might not be able to explicitly say in, in, in other forms. I was thinking about then, then on that note, this sort of... Alex mentioned at the start the other registers of, of fantasy, and I was. Mm. Uh, what I find interesting about the, the film is that, well, one, you have Porky Pig enter into the world of Wiley e. Coyote, which for a minute, because yeah. uh, you have characters in the film watching cartoons, so they have a kind of cultural yep. currency within the world of the film. Then that's problematized by the fact that you can actually go and visit seemingly the world that we've seen in the cartoons. You just have to drill into the center of the earth, go through the sort of familiar Warner Brothers you know, a series of circles and then we're into the world. And I was trying to think, and this is kind of going back to what Alex was talking about earlier with regards to Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And I know Alex has feelings about Who Framed Roger Rabbit insofar as, and we talk often a lot about the oil and water relationship between animation and live action is that the tendency is to think of them as as connected and sharing the same court. But of course, part of the pleasure is that you know full well that these people couldn't possibly interact with Michael Jordan that yes that yet there's the pleasure of yeah. of always maintaining that dissonance and knowing that these are these are a function of the the special powers of the medium and not that they actually might have, yeah. have passed the basketball to each other and so I, I was trying to think about all the different registers of, of fantasy and the way that the film organizes its characters stars in one world can pass to another world is this the same as something like who frame roger rabbit what i was interested in is that you have from the perspective of the cartoon characters they call live act the live action world is the other world because they call it 3d land and i really yeah. like that inversion of of films that set up our world as the main one and then go into the these tune worlds or two whereas it's the other way around what's strange is is our world and actually most of the film takes place not in our world but in the world of the cartoons yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's a really, you know, it's a, it's a very important observation in, in relation to the nature of how we, in a sense, how we construct worlds. Mm. One of the kind of big things about the War- the Warner Brothers landscape, for example, is one uh, very much, I think, that has got a very clear uh, kind of there's a kind of clear picture in the in the public Amer- imagination, certainly in American animation, mm. uh, 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 American imaginary. Um, about sort of like the Warner Brothers kind of visual space, you know, and sort of, and and Disney, for for my money, has has that far more related to the theme parks 
and the whole kind of way in which kind of like Main Street Missouri works and, and how you know, Disney's created a kind of 3D theme park version of that. But the Warner Brothers kind of kind of model is very much that sort of, you know, way in which you know, its world is almost immediately visible. And, I, and, and there's much of me that says that it's got a coherence as a world for all of its zaniness and for all of its kind of chaos that, that actually the American public are really, really familiar with. So they would recognise the differentials between the idea of old school cartoons of the 30s and 40s particularly, but actually into the 50s too, and the way in which we construct American urban or suburban life. You know, they're, they're almost distinct worlds in, in, in that way anyway. So there's, there's, there's a way in which, like Jordan in this, obviously, that, you know, there, there's a moment where, where he goes home and he's got this family life, obviously, and the three children, and, and it's a kind of supposedly kind of typical American home that, uh, you know, that, that presents him, ironically, in a moment of failure. I mean, the whole base, you know, the way that baseball was treated in it, I think it's hilarious mm-hmm. because... You know, it's that sense of kind of like you suck. You know, you you really can't play basketball. Baseball, you're a basketball player. You know, mm. and of course that's partly how he's goaded into actually playing the sort of match. You know, both in relation to you know the kind of the, uh, both at the end with the NBA players, even in terms of a kind of you know play between them. That somehow that that he can't take the idea that he you know can be criticised or he can be you know seen as a failure in some way and of course last dance really does confirm that if you watch that series quite extraordinary the kind of lengths that jordan would go to to not fail you know mm-hmm. and that would include you know really obliterating others around him both in the team and in opposition you know make sure that his particular identity was maintained so some 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 quite complex stuff going on in there yeah. uh, you know in, in those ways but i think that's sort of how it starts to function that the worlds are already identifiable almost historically you know we've seen those cartoons so often that even by the time we get to the 90s and certainly now those worlds are as distinctive as anything you can name in the kind of material world of of, yeah. of american life yeah absolutely that the the baseball thing i think is interesting because it sort of puts his his black body in a different space and 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 that's a, almost a shorthand is where he doesn't quite fit in that in that world he's not very good it's a I think the ba- the comparison between baseball and, and basketball in the film is 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 interesting. But actually, I was gonna th- this film. I don't think yeah, it wouldn't work if it was a version of Mickey's Polo Match or something. It, it has to be. No. It has to be Looney Tunes. And so I was going to ask you, Paul, what, what, what it, it has to be Looney Tunes for the way that the film wants to construct its particular brand of animated anarchy. It seems it seems like it's yeah. got. It, of, of course, it's the Looney Tunes characters that, as you said, inhabit a world that is coherent and familiar to us historically. Um, in a way that it wouldn't quite work. It would be a different film if it was Disney characters. And there's a very, you know, there's some very clear evidence to that actually, because if you go back to the the goofy sport cartoons. Yeah. Uh, really, from, uh, absolutely explicitly, from 1941 to you know to, to you know to 1951 or two, um, essentially, the, the whole kind of uh, idea about uh, you know Goofy's place in them is kind of to explain the rules of, of, of various sports, and you make lots of gags about the, the fact that he can't execute and that he kind of uh, you know that he'll that he'll mess up. Uh, you know, putting on a pair of skis, or he'll 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 not be able to play basketball and twist himself into a knot, or something like that. And they're all kind of bona fide, brilliantly animated Disney gags. But it's really funny because those films were made in response to 
uh, Warner Brothers kind of already redefinition of the cartoon mm. because Warner Brothers had sped it up. Warner Brothers had, had, had kind of made it more urban and more anarchic. The jokes were, you know, obviously a little more adult sometimes. But Disney responded by saying, oh, the best way to respond to that is to make even faster animation. So basically the Disney animators do all these incredible sequences, actually, over that period in terms of sports choreography played out through Goofy as a character. But ultimately, by the time they get to the last film, you know, in kind of that cycle of Goofy's, you know, you know sports films, they're essentially aping Warner Brothers cartoons. They almost admit that it's it's lost. They're all fragmented. They're all kind of balmy gags. There's a there's a there's a cartoon that's got even a sequence that uh, that's jumped in from from uh, from uh, Pinocchio. You know, and so they they kind of you know fragment the cartoon in a very Warner Brothers way because they realise the choreographies of anima of animation, uh, even done as brilliantly as they are by the Disney uh, crowd, can't quite have that currency of a Warner Brothers kind of ironic, slick, urban today modern feel. Mm, you know, mm. and and just to sort of I guess my two cents on the whole versions of rhetoric going on and how it feeds into that kind of Warner Brothers stable is that it's just the, the key word of anarchy that transcends through all these things and I've just two points I've got to say which is one is about Moron Mountain which I think is a really interesting <laughs> plot device because that doesn't need to be in this film right we don't need to introduce we, yeah, we don't need we to have. introduce a new aspect that we've already got to try and buy into the idea that Bugs Bunny's going to play basketball with Michael Jordan now we've also got to buy into the fact that there's these ma- aliens from outer space that are the villains of the movie who we've never met before but I think what that does is that actually what it is that it, it, what it could read like is very much a Who Framed Roger Rabbit Toontown kind of scenario where the, the, yeah. the animated centre of the earth is where toons live and then everything else is live action. But by having that, that out of space rupture, that's all suddenly in flux. And really the language is a world we know and a world that is intrusive and the intrusive is animated and the world we know is is live action because the aliens come down from out of space and then well there's the shot right where michael jordan watches the the alien spaceship come down from out of space and then immediately go straight past uh 3d land and down into the center of the earth and it's like we're going to bypass reality and go from one fantasy to another and that's sort of how the 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 film is playing things out and then my second point is is the difference in the film between wayne knight and bill murray in that i'm pretty sure other than the monsters wayne knight is the only character in this film who isn't a a pre-established looney tunes figure who we already know so arguably bugs bunny is playing himself in the movie and isn't yeah. someone else playing themselves paul wayne knight when he must have got the gig because he's the only person who has to play a character in the sense that yeah. we, you know bill murray gets to play bill murray all the nba stars get to play the nba stars but wayne knight plays i can't is it stan something stan, isn't yeah. he? he's like, like a sniveling yeah, yeah. kind of pr figure and that kind of disturbs the whole thing because then you've got bill murray play everyone's playing themselves except wayne knight who's a, enough of a celebrity at least in my head to, to to know who that's wayne knight that's an actor a famous actor yeah. and yet that's well, in flux too so the whole thing's yeah, in flux and anarchic yeah, you know, what was fascinating this day is that we've not even mentioned Danny DeVito. Of course, Danny yes. DeVito is, 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 <laughs> the big, is the big kind of vocal, you know, artist, comedian who 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 is who is in this film. But he, you know, he's he really, you know, obviously he voices Swackhammer, the mm. the big villain, you know, up, up in Moron Mountain. 
uh, the, the guy who's watching Rabbit of Seville, you know, and watching, you know, Warner Brothers cartoons and sees them as attractions. You know, for those, I thought, you know, it's a gift, that one for film studies, mm. you know, people, when he says, what we need is attractions. Mm. And he immediately says, what we need is these guys. It's also know? a gift for and, us uh, making the Disney Warner Brothers comparison that the villains of the piece are a theme park constantly looking for new attractions, right? I mean, I had to yeah, get that yeah, in there. Yeah, yeah. And, and equally, the whole, the whole kind of thing about what the space element, mm. of course, is it, it, really to reference all of that kind of, you know, Marvin the Martian kind of like you know sort of late Warner Brothers cartoons that were really popular in the states you know you know the kind of the, as well as the kind of um, sort of Grand Canyon type deserts of the Roadrunner you know uh, Warner Brothers became as as popular for in a certain sense their implied space operas you know that they were kind of playing back again to the kind of you know the Star Wars crowd and mm. and, and, and you know the space elements of it the Jetsons and, and and the like you know so so all of these kind of like you know sort of narratives that that got purchased in American cultural life you know the you know the film was really self-conscious about you know and readily used and and I think that that you know, it's kind of the, the, the it's it's that knowingness that, in a certain sense, still makes this film watchable. You know, you know, when you go back to a lot of uh, you know a lot of films from certainly, I, I feel the eighties and nineties now, and I'm thinking, God, you know, just how how appalling is that? You know, but you know, there's still a kind of currency around Space Jam that because of its knowingness, and I and I'll be very surprised if the new LeBron, you know, movie has got that level of kind of knowingness in it about, you know, not merely kind of like cartoon history, but American cultural history and the kind of ways in which audiences have interacted with the idea of, of, of obviously of Jordan's career, but Bugs Bunny's career, of, of the kind of, of the Warner Brothers, uh, you know, Saturday morning cartoon kind of identity, you know, and how that related then, you know, to what was then... Hanna-Barbera, you know, basically being, you know, cartoons shown on a Saturday morning. So, you know, Warner Brothers was always remembered much more because, of course, they were full animation and they were kind of so different from the from the reduced animation of Hanna-Barbera that in the popular American memory, you know, those old cartoons stood up, you know, they were so, they were so much better as it were, you know. So, so all of those factors, come, you know, come into this. And I think Space Jam, you know, is a nice compendium of all of these kind of issues, as you were pointing out at the beginning of our, of our conversation, yeah. because, uh, you know, for anybody who's interested in animation, sport, American cultural history, you know, and so forth, it's a nice touchstone to any amount of debates and issues there. Yeah. Well, actually, you, you, about this kind of currency that they still... Obviously, they, they hold this currency, as I said, in the film because characters sit down and watch and Michael Jordan puts on the, ca- the, the cartoons for his children as a way of sort of... And actually, it's because of the disruption to the, the cartoon that we know something is is up. Um, I, 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 we're running... I mean, we could, we could keep going, but I mean, mm. I, I, I'm interested in the 90s-ness of it... Um, and I, this works very well with the film Flubber, which came out the year after, which I also think has a basket. It was based around the, the impact of, of animation yeah. and a form of animation on sport uh, and the ability yeah. of, of... Anyway, uh, but I, I guess Alex made a point at the start about nostalgia, and I just wondered where this sort of... Because what I like about... I, know, I knew not much about this film beyond... Uh, the characters, obviously, and it's 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 sort of importance within and within a sort of uh, American, as you say, cultural history. But also the fact that the website had 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 always been the 1996 version of the website. If you visit Space Jam website, it looks like the 96 version of the site, as if there's something 
that's happening around what the film is doing with with parsonness and uh, and nostalgia and, and how that then feeds into what it then does with Michael Michael Jordan and so yeah I just I just wondered the the nostalgic element for us as we sit here x amount of years after that film and and anticipating the new one yeah that whether that knowingness comes from from something that's nostalgic because I think yeah Alex you mentioned at the start something around what you what, what interests you about the film is is around well, nostalgia. Yeah, well, well, I, I think I've declared no, numerous times how I perhaps have a nostalgic <laughs> relationship to the film. But I think also the film is nostalgic for the 50s, 60s um, cartoons of which it's referencing. And, and I think what's interesting is, of course, we've got... I, I haven't looked into the, the credits of, it all, of this, Paul, but we, obviously this isn't... As you made the point, Paul, the labour behind Bugs Bunny doesn't exist anymore at least it's transferred Ooh. to a completely new labor department we've got a new set of animators we've got a new uh, voice cast yeah. you know this this n- none of the mechanics the bits of bugs bunny exist in the real world anymore and yet what we yeah. get is bugs bunny on screen so i think a lot of we, what we've already said about sort of making these things into icons and timeless icons that can that can exist as objects of fantasy um, part of what it's doing is yes it's kind of reclaiming Michael Jordan's fantastical nature but it's also saying don't worry Bugs Bunny is still there he's just underground yeah. and we can't see him quite so often and it's yeah, alright if he doesn't it. quite sound the same but yeah, yeah. he is the same you know yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's the thing though that, that is, that's the whole thing is that he can you know for, like many characters of that sort they, they, you know they can be just absolutely well I suppose mm. Chris it's, it's you know some of the stuff that you said about the hybridity before these hybridities tend to be about their original identities as they emerged as iconic cartoon characters matched with their newer capacity to be a cipher for the contemporary moment, you know. And so kind of like Bugs in the 90s there would have seen to, would have been seen to be, you know, a combination of his, you know, 40s identity. But in the midst of it, you know, the kind of idea of the ironic kind of take on, the, on, on you know, on, on 90s culture. And so, you know, he's a suitable character for that. It fits... But nevertheless, you know, there's a cipher of 90s-ness there. So it'd be quite interesting, in, you know, in July when the new movie comes out to see where, you know, Bugs' iconography will be drawn upon, you know. Uh, you know, you know, this means war. There's going to be that and there's going to be, you know, left turns to Al- Albuquerque and, and we're going to get all of that kind of uh, stuff happening. But we're also going to get that that cipher of what does he represent now, you know, in, in, in 2021 up against and working with LeBron, who is a much more kind of edgier, complex, egocentric, uh, you know, sort of guy who has always championed him his, um, himself as someone who was who is better than Jordan. You know, so that's a really kind of interesting kind of kind of thing here to see how that will you know that will play out. But um, whatever way, I think I think that nostalgic thing is almost just built in to our understanding of. Sadly, actually, and it, it was very detrimental for a long time of animation in general. You know, it was put, it was it was positioned as a childhood thing, a children's thing. And it took a long, long, long time for to, to really get that out of the equation to so say that it's, it, it's not only that. That's the first thing. We can look at, at any amount of things that aren't that. And then in order to de- reposition it to say, if it is part of childhood and if it is kind of a uh, children's entertainment, then what is it doing specifically? Mm. You know, what is it doing, uh, you know, in terms of the way in which we remember it? And so much of that 
will be, you know, the particular moments in which we've seen certain cartoons at a certain age. All that, all that crowd that trans, you know, that kind of really, really champions Transformers as a cartoon, for example. It was their moment of childhood, and no one's going to say that Transformers are rubbish, you know, and, and so forth. And you know, for me, you know, the irony of it is, of course, I'm old enough to 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 really still be in that late watch with mother generation that was still kind of Mr. Ben and, you know, Mary Mungo and Mitch, you know, and and, and, and actually Czechoslovakian cartoons or what were Czech, Czechoslovakian cartoons. Didn't know that at the time, but they were these weird things that came on Wednesday afternoons, you know. So, so my kind of nostalgic recollections are less about those things, but certainly for an American public, they would absolutely be rooted in the idea that they were part of virtually every childhood to this day, mm-hmm. you know. So, so we're going to have that long into the future too, you know. Yeah, um, I, I feel we should wrap up. What a what a treat! I, I, we'll have to get you back for when the new film comes out for sure, and and, yeah. and see what it's doing in relation to the to the um, original. I've got. I mean, we've we've covered so much. I just wonder if there's any sort of final bits that we haven't haven't touched. I think the voice is really interesting. There was something that didn't quite sit right in terms of some of the voices and. And, and though it wasn't as much of a of a of a distraction as I perhaps thought, but I was very interested in what what the film was doing with its its voice cast and some of the key players that have a have a tradition in terms of um, voice artistry. Billy West, uh, Maureen Lamarche, all those all these kinds of figures that are really important to actually the the extra textual iterations of these characters across different media platforms. When we don't have the original and we have impersonations that appear across different, um, yeah different video games or television series. I suppose part of it is is when we as an audience are explicitly asked to recognise a voice for particular purposes, you know. And in that particular moment, I mean, it was very important that people recognise that Danny DeVito was in it, even though you'd never ever see it, you know. So Swackhammer is sort of DeVito-esque in, the, in yeah. the design. We know that there's a kind of DeVito-esque kind of attitude that follows with that. So his star persona kind of flows into the film in a particular way. It's very important, for example, that we know that Woody is Tom Hanks, you know. That is a very important, you know, sort of relationship. But if you think about any amount of other animated characters, even if they've got stars playing them, there's often a desire to really downplay that aspect on the basis of, you know, the idea is go with the character, not with the star persona. And I think there's some real tensions there across the board when we kind of recognise key players in terms of their stardom as they impact upon their characters and then when you've got a situation chris as you've just pointed out where if we're used to that as the vocal delivery you know how it changes when somebody else is doing that as recently with things like buzz buzz lightyear for example in the cartoons and the like you know no 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 that you know that's that that doesn't sound right now does that disturb or change your interpretation of the character and it may well do of course you know so sound in general, is crucial in animation for any amount of reasons. But that vocal intonation yeah. might make all the difference about whether we believe these imaginaries or whether, in fact, you know, we abandon them. Well, I suppose it goes back to the the, the thing that we began with. Then the poster of the film that has Michael Jordan and Bugs Bunny, and and the the way in which we're invited to respond to who who Bugs is in the film, in relation, you know, and this idea of him being a cipher for a particular. Uh, historical cultural moments but also we're supposed to understand him as as 
is equal to or in the same bodily terms or the same starry terms as somebody like Michael Jordan and the, and the cultural um, associations that come with both of those characters and then what happens when you put them in a film together? Yeah, Chris, you know, I think it's actually it turns out to be the very opposite. It's it, oh. it's actually, in fact, Bugs is the biggest star, yeah. you know. Yeah. And so and so the association for Jordan with Bugs is far more important, <laughs> than, yeah. you know. Uh, and, and, and crucially, because he's cross-age, he's cross-gender, he's cross-history, cross uh, he will be more, more well-known to, you know, to an American public. Yeah. Uh, you know, Dan Jordan. Jordan will, of course, be known to millions, but there will be a, a major sector of American uh, cultural life that who are not interested in sport, don't engage with sport, that may know, you know, may him, may know him only, you know, in, in passing. Mm. And uh, uh, you know, just a, a reference to that, which I always, you know, come across in teaching, is when is when, for example, I ask, you know, predominantly white middle-class students who Sachin Tendulkar is, you know, the cricketer. And sort of like, of course, he is God across, you know, Asia. And not, hardly anybody in the room knows him, you know. And so, you know, these cultural factors, these national factors and historical factors really are, are so fundamental to our identities. Yeah. And that's why iconic characters from animation like Mickey Mouse, like Glugs Bunny, in being kind of eternal are the ones that people will recognise far more probably than people who come and go, so yeah. to speak. Well, I suppose with, with the sport thing, you know, we have sportsmen have, when they come to a relatively, what can be a relatively short career, that can also be cut short at various moments. They go into, you know, management or punditry or they sort of disappear. And I love that idea that the, the eternal nature of bugs once again speaks to animation, legitimising live action again, you know. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, well, for us, for us animation champions, I mean, all of that always yeah. kind of like makes you feel that it's it's the justification you can make when people turn around and say, "Oh, it's just for kids." Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. And, you know and, and, and and that's less of an accusation about animation nowadays. Hmm. But nevertheless, you know, there's always a strong sense in which once you start getting people to watch animation for the kind of language of expression that it is, yeah. uh, you'd be hard pushed for most people not to go, "Wow, hang on." I've never seen it like this before. And once they start seeing it, you can't unsee it. You know, you do see what animation kind of can offer to, you know, to storytelling, to representation, to the ways in which we construct motion and construct our universe in general. That, you know, that is obviously very different from the kind of physical worlds of, of, of material life. I think increasingly, the you know, just for kids, for, for, from from my perspective, you know, I don't mind that animation is is for kids. I think it is culturally often consumed by children, and I think you put it well earlier in the podcast, Paul, when you said that you know it's not about not necessarily about shutting that down; it's about exploring it in some depth. So I think the problem with the sentence yeah. is the word "just" because it's yeah. it, it, it 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 simplifies and it excludes, um, and it doesn't and it and it shouldn't do either. So um, I think yeah. hopefully it's, 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 we it's, it's, have removed the word yeah. "just." from Space sure. Jam in our conversations. Yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, again, culturally, it's very different. I, mean, I work regularly, you know, across Europe with with uh, screenwriters who are doing, you know, features for children and, and, 
and television programs for, for children. And there's no cultural issues about that whatsoever in, you know, France, Norway, the Netherlands, Belgium. It's seen as an art form and an art form that can culturally reach children in, you know, in a very in an accessible way, but in ways that bring them, you know, everything from entertainment to education without anybody even vaguely saying that it's just anything, you know. Mm. So, you know, I've always thought that, and, and I suppose, again, this, this is something that I like to remind virtually everybody that, you know, that over the years, and, you know, for the animation cognoscenti, they know this, but in sort of more public audiences, you know, I've, I've had to remind them all that, you know, the history of the American animated cartoon is not the history of animation, you know, and, and the, my animation has got a long history all over the world mm. and in all sorts of different kind of contexts and places and forms. And if we keep that in mind, inevitably we're going to see the American version of things as only one version. Yeah. And that's actually quite helpful. Yeah. Chris, yeah, we've yeah. got a lot more episodes to record, it sounds like. Uh, um. Yes, yes. yes, yes. <laughs> now, normally now, normally, this is the bit in the podcast where Alex does the... Um, I mean, obviously, we'll, we'll, we'll say a proper thanks. But what I wanted to do is actually talk about your Twitter handle because this is normally the place where Alex would say, so where can people find you and find your um, work? And, and anyone, I, I think anyone who's interested in animation will probably own a copy of, of your 1998 book understanding animation and most libraries will will stock it so alex is nodding at me um uh, but you're they can obviously find you on on social media so i was gonna what's your what's your twitter because i think this actually feeds quite nicely into this collision of animation and, and sport yeah i mean for me i mean kind of like you know i i i the, the I, I didn't really get into social media for any amount of reasons, simply simply because I'm you know very fortunate that I get contacted and connected with by people from all sorts of walks of life and all over the world all the time for various kind of you know connections and so yeah. forth. But I, I actually did create a Twitter handle called at Beautiful Frame, which was basically uh, which is at at Beautiful underscore Frame, one should say. Um, which was related to the exhibition that I did first at the National Football Museum, 2017, uh, about animation and sport. You know, it's 200, you know, 200 films, 80 artifacts from you know all, all over the world, sort of celebrating sport, but within the context of the National Football Museum. Yeah. It went and toured a bit in Japan, and it's gone to China. We're hopefully going to eventually get to Australia and so forth. They're very interested in taking it there. But the whole idea was to kind of like, in a, you know, the, why the National Football Museum were very interested was that the idea that they wanted to stretch their audience in two ways. One, in terms of sport, because it was more than football, so to speak, but also in terms of animation. They had no aspect of the mu museum at all that was animated. Nothing. Not one single element. And when I actually said, because I went there one day with my son and, and my partner and just basically said, hey, look, we could do a big exhibition in here. And uh, my son said, you're going to do a big exhibition in here, aren't you? And I said, yes, I am. And away we went, you know. So so there it was. But it was very important because I wanted, you know, the representation of sport, obviously, to be in, a, in an exhibition of that sort and in a museum of that sort. But crucially, mm. that actually animation has much to say about sport or indeed anything else as any other discipline, you know. Yeah. And they love, for example, a lot of lot of films that I showed about fans. You know, there's a whole lot of, uh, you know, animated films about sports fans and kind of like, and that was a big thing that we did an outreach event about and everything else. And people loved those films, you know. They thought that they had embraced, uh, you know, sport and the relationship to human emotion 
much more powerfully than virtually any other kind of sport film they'd seen. So yeah. it was really a kind of, you know, a, a good thing to do. Wonderful. So that's, yeah, beautiful, at beautiful underscore frame um, for those yeah. for those Twitter folks. Alex, I'm going to leave the rest of the mopping up to you as you, you do it better than me every week. Ah, oh, that's very kind. Oh, is that kind? Yeah, all right, fine. I'll take. I'll take. I get the. I get the admin jobs. Paul, I mean, this isn't admin at all. This is um, supreme gratitude. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast and for chatting to us about um, Space Jam. It's been an absolute pleasure, as I as I thought it was going to be, but it you have confirmed so much. No, no, you're very, very welcome, and and I'm obviously very happy to natter animation about any anything, anytime, <laughs> whenever you'd like to. So it's all good fun. But thank you very much for inviting me. Thank it you. was a great. It was a. It was a very good conversation though, because we did manage to cover, you know, all the kind of touchstones of that film. <laughs> I think hopefully in a way that it's just not about Space Jam, but as mm, about yeah. animation, about sport, and a range of other topics that people might be interested in. Yeah. So, so thanks very much. It's been terrific. Thank you. Thanks, uh, thanks, Paul. And you know, you can find us at Fancy Dash Animation. Org. Why not read our previous blog posts? We've got lots of stuff covering uh, many of the issues we've discussed on this show. Um, we've got an episode, I think, where we talked about Paul's book uh, when we did Bread Knobs and Broomsticks, and we talked about the football match uh, in that. So why not access our archive there? And you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Reddit at FanAnim Research. F A N A N I M Research. If you're feeling very old fashioned, you can also use that handle and put an at gmail.com and send us an email let us know what you thought of the show and any feedback any sports movies and we should be checking out um, in the future otherwise thanks very much for joining us for another week and we'll see you next time bye bye